It's the dream of pretty well every Canadian to own their own home. Do you remember the time you got the keys to your first home? I do. It's a goal-fulfilling feeling, but it's a dream out of reach for many Canadians right now, which is why all the federal parties are preaching about their platforms to provide more affordable housing. Will any of them work? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. Affordable housing is defined as spending no more than 30% of the family income on rent or mortgage payments. When it rises above that, it forces people to cut back somewhere else. At the beginning of the election campaign, affordable housing was the top priority for most Canadians. Prices across this country have been on the rise, with Toronto and Vancouver leading the way. The average price of a home in T.O. now north of $1 million. Not exactly the environment or the price tag for those entering the market for the first time. Our unpublished.vote question asks, which federal party has the best plan to create affordable housing? The Liberals, the Conservatives, the NDP, or the Green Party, or the People's Party of Canada? The Liberals at 5.8%, the Conservatives 69.9%, the NDP at 9.7%, the Green Party at 1.9%, and the People's Party of Canada at 12.6%. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the platforms and whether they'll be effective, I am pleased to be joined by Nick Nanos. He's the chief data scientist and founder of Nanos Research. Steve Pomeroy is the senior research fellow for the Center for Urban Research and Education at Carleton University. And David Oikel is the president of the Ontario Real Estate Association. I thank all three of you for joining us today on this very important issue about affordable housing in the election campaign. And David, we'll start with you. Obviously, housing is all about supply and demand. And what has reduced the supply of affordable housing? Yeah, thank you very much, Ed. Uh, you know, Aria has been talking about that for since long before the pandemic, about the, the need to uh, address uh, the supply imbalance with demand. Um, you know, demand continues to grow uh, and that uh, supply is just not kept up. And uh, there are a number of reasons for that we could talk about. Um, but really, the, that, that's the key factor that is making housing affordable. When demand outstrips supply, then uh, then you need to um, uh, address it. And, uh, you know, the, the prices have gone up in the last year when immigration has actually been pretty low. So demand will uh, increase even further when uh, immigration, which is so important to the country, uh, increases again uh, when, whenever that happens post-pandemic. Um, but, you know, and this is, uh, we're gratified that it's being talked about in the federal campaign, but it's just not a federal issue, obviously. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's an Ontario issue and it's a municipal issue and zoning issues and all the, and red tape. So all the things that we can talk about over the next little while but we're really grateful that uh, that the federal uh, campaigns are talking about it, and we want to make sure that that conversation uh, continues uh, post uh, September 20th. Now, Steve, Canada lost more than 300,000 affordable housing units between 2011 and 2016. Where where did they go? Yeah, now you're talking about the uh, the rental sector as opposed mm. to the ownership sector that I think David was kind of alluding to. Um, and basically that analysis, we looked at relatively affordable existing rental units, renting below $750 a month, which is affordable at that 30% you mentioned, <laughs> to incomes up to 30000 a year. So if we look at the, the, the numbers in this two censuses, 11 and 16, we, as you say, lost 322,000. We didn't lose all of them. We lost mm. some through demolition. I mean, many, many municipalities are 
uh, encouraging intensification and redevelopment. When we intensify and redevelop in the inner city areas, that's where the older stock tends to be. So we may have knocked down a 20, 20 unit, you know, small apartment building to build a new condo. So demolitions were one factor. The bigger factor though, is the fact that the, the, those units still exist but they exist at much higher rents. We've had very significant increase in rent levels over that, that particular five years, but even more so uh, since then, as uh, vacancy rates have come down and demand has gone up. And I think there are some real acute pressures in the rental market when we're, we're losing essentially 60,000 units a year. These are, these are not units that are publicly provided. They're privately owned uh, rental apartments built by developers that were still at moderate rents. Uh, but because of the opportunity to increase rents, uh, the rents have gone up market and they're now renting at $900, $1,100, $1,200 a month and are not available to low-income folks. Nick, when you talk to Canadians, are, are they worried that there isn't enough supply the price, or the price is too high? And is this about incomes not keeping up with rising inflation? Well, this is about price. They don't necessarily, you know, to David's point about supply, they're not experts. That's all they know is that the prices are going up and they can't afford it. And, you know, in, in the research that we've done about, it suggests that about 15% of Canadians are worried or somewhat worried about whether they'll even be able to pay the rent or pay the mortgage in the next 30 days. And it might not sound like a big number, but it's 4.9 million Canadians. And the other thing is everybody needs a place to live. And, you know, whether you're a senior or an older person, you're worried about whether the kids can afford a place to live, whether you're a millennial, you're wondering whether you can get into the market. And, uh, and you know, the other thing that we do know from a, a policy perspective is that in the last four years, um, the, the Liberal government has been very proactive in bringing new Canadians to the country. And there's been population growth. But I'm not sure if they've given thought to where are folks going to live? Like it's one thing to say we're going to bring two, three hundred, four hundred thousand more Canadians, uh, new Canadians into the country, and then you have to think about well, where's the housing? And uh, and I think this is where you know the discussion on the supply um, is uh, is is critical on this front. Uh, David, the Conservatives promised one million homes in three years using fifteen percent of of government buildings or. Uh, government buildings that aren't going to be used anymore. Is, is that a realistic goal? Is that real? Can that really be done? Yeah, it's hard to know the uh, the details of, of where those houses are and, and uh, do we have the right trades uh, to build all of those that certainly, and you know, and, and what kind of houses, right? Are they, are they all detached or are they the, the right, you know, price differences to address all kinds of needs? Because you know, as Steve mentions, we need to uh, address all income levels and not just uh, not just you know bigger detached homes. Yeah, and using federal lands, you know, uh, to uh, you know um, provide for uh, development opportunities. I mean, all of them talk about more supply. All of them talk about uh, you know different ways to do it and at different price levels. Um, devil's in the details. Uh, it, it sounds like a lot of homes, but that's what's going to take um, because it's it's significant and as. Uh, and as Nick says, you know, as we continue to uh, bring uh, folks into the country, which is so important for us, we need to have some place to house them. So uh, it's critical that uh, that we build more supply and uh, all hands on deck at all three levels of government to make it happen. You know, you bring up a good point there, David, that uh, really a lot of this housing stuff is done at the provincial and municipal level. Uh, can the federal government really, you know, put itself into the market? <laughs> Well, I'll just say, I mean, you know, uh, at, at the end of the day, I mean, they 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 can contribute money to it, obviously, and contribute funding to uh, 
to uh, provinces to try to encourage them to uh, and municipalities to encourage the, the, the building. So that's where the, the, the largest impact can be. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what Nick and Steve have to say about that as well. What do you think, Nick? Well, I'm thinking, you know, one of the things is the feds are talking about this because it's a hot issue and right. it affects everyone. And, you know, they don't think in terms of who's responsible for what, but, you know, to, to your point and to David's point, it's fundamentally, it's the province and municipalities that are really in the driver's seat on this one. Perhaps the federal government can take a page out of a lot of other issues that they're not the lead on, like healthcare, where perhaps they could fund something in order to enable provinces and municipalities to deliver more supply and help on housing, but not to direct a housing policy per se, because uh, Steve, I'm not sure what you think. That's gotta be done almost at the, like the local level, right? Because they're on the ground, they know what the housing needs are in like the big cities and in smaller communities. And uh, you know, why don't we just say maybe hands off money in <laughs> from the feds. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I mean, on that one, certainly, I mean, you know, the National Housing Strategy does that. I mean, essentially working in collaboration with the provinces is seeking to cost share the development of housing. But I think it is important to pass out some of these different issues that we're kind of glossing over. Uh, you know, we've, you know, there are really three parts in the housing system, the acute need of homelessness. And I think people are very concerned that in a rich country like Canada, we shouldn't have homelessness. So all parties say they're going to try and end that. We've got the very acute and increasing challenges in the rental sector, which I, I mentioned earlier and then we've got this issue of access to home ownership and i think you know nick's right i mean basically you know this is an election campaign as, as kim campbell once said election campaign is no time to talk about serious policy um the, the you know and what, and what you're seeing is you know the platforms are essentially they're not helping people buy houses they're trying to buy votes uh you know pandering to the millennials and the folks who can't get into home ownership uh, it's it's a good election message. You know, we're going to help you get a house, but the reality is the federal government really can't. Uh, they can do a few things at the margins in that area, but the things they're actually doing, if we've got rising house prices uh, driven up by people's ability to pay, uh, giving people you know access to more money uh, and giving them credit uh, and uh, and uh, you know savings accounts and tax breaks when they purchase, you're you're pouring fuel on the fire. So in many respects, you know, what they say they would like to, they want to help people into the houses, but the prescription and the mechanisms they're putting in there aren't actually going to help that. And I think, you know, the, where, the, where the federal government can intervene is, uh, as, uh, as David and Nick alluded to, uh, you know, funding directly, but not funding for home ownership, funding for those folks for whom the market is unable to provide because they have too little money. And I think that's where we, we need to think about, you know, what are the investment strategies for those more vulnerable and even you know, lower middle income renters? Uh, David, what's the impact of, of real estate speculators and, and how do you rein it in, if at all? Yeah, I think that the, each of the parties have, uh, have talked about it. I won't use the word speculators. You know, foreign ownership, though, I'll talk about that has been one of the things that they've talked about in either eliminating or reducing it or taxing it. Um, you know, you know, when, whenever you make decisions on policy, you should do, use it with you know, do it with numbers and, you know, uh, understanding you know, what the significant impact is. I know in uh, in uh, Toronto, I think it was three years ago, they were talking about, you know, foreign ownership was a big deal. And they uh, they, they determined that it was, uh, you know, about two, two to three percent of the market. Um, and so when they put a foreign uh, uh, buyer's tax in uh, the Golden Horseshoe, it was based on that data. 
you know, uh, you know, it's not a significant uh, element, I don't think. Uh, it sounds like it's uh, in, you know, I'm, not, I'm less informed on Vancouver, to be fair, uh, than I am in Toronto. Um, but it seems like it's good, um, it's good optics. Uh, but I don't think it's a significant element in the, in the marketplace. I mean, but everything that can increase supply is is good, you know, and and or or make the existing supply be more productive. I think that those are all good things because we can't leave any stone unturned. But I don't think it's a, a significant element uh, in it. Um, you know, they talk about house flippers. Um, you know, whether that's a, a thing. I mean, I think that people who invest uh, buy a home that they buy on the open market. Uh, that uh, then they put their own money and sweat equity in and, and improve it and sell it on the open market. Uh, and if they make some money on it, I think that that's a, a very good thing because they've improved housing. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a good thing. And, and to tax them differently than anybody else, uh, I'm not sure that's a, that's a great idea. Um, so those are a couple of things that I'd comment on. All right. Uh, Nick, uh, the NDP is talking about 30-year mortgages. Is that just... You know, I was the conservatives. What's the NDP? You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is uh, sometimes things that might sound like good politics is bad public policy. You know, the big question is, is you know, and if and if we were uh, we were talking to our parents, we'd said, hey, you know, what do you think about that thirty year mortgage? They'd say that's crazy, mm-hmm. right? That uh, you know, the the other thing is, is that you know, we need a we need a housing regime, not just that is affordable, but that so that someone can actually have a chance of paying off their mortgage within their lifetime when they're, when they're, when they're ready to retire. And uh, so, you know, I think that's why, you know, we saw, we've seen previous governments dial back, like open up the 30 year and then dial it back because they just be worried about, uh, about the debt that, uh, that Canadians are taking on. You know, the other thing that's interesting in the market and, you know, I'm sure David and Steve can speak to this with probably some more authority, but, um, the number of individuals that are buying properties as, as investments uh, over the last five years where, you know, they might buy a condo and they might be using it for an Airbnb or just a straight up uh, traditional rental and how uh, how that's kind of changing the market where, where you know, they're not just because they've got to cover the, cover the freight. They're not necessarily going at the low end of the market and just driving prices up. Uh, as opposed to people uh, owning owning their home and 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 so forth. So I think that's the thing. And and you know, finally, before I kind of throw it back to the group, is you know that this pandemic has been unique because you know in work that we've done for the Ontario Real Estate Association, it suggests that a lot of the activity has to do with people dealing with telework, needing a different kind of living space because it wasn't they didn't buy their condo or rented their place based on working from home. Now, all of a sudden, they're working from home. If they have kids, the kids are going to school from home. And as a result, they've needed to kind of engage the services of realtor and turn to a realtor to say, hey, you know what? My situation has changed. You know, I've got two kids that are in school and they're, you know, taking classes. So I need for them to have space to do their classes. My wife or my partner is working and then I'm working, teleworking. And uh, that's also put a lot of uh, pressure on the marketplace where people just need more space uh, in order to to balance life and work, where before no one ever thought of working, you know, most people didn't think of working like five days a week from the house. Now Now that's a distinct possibility. David, I wonder, is that what you and the the realtors are are hearing in, in terms of people who are seeking properties or who are buying? 
Yeah, absolutely. Nick, Sarah, I really identified it. You know, a year and a bit ago, uh, when uh, people started to work from home, it didn't take very long for people to realize that uh, that uh, somebody in the house was driving them nuts, um, and maybe more than <laughs> one. Um, so, you know, they did need, uh, you know, a condo downtown uh, for two people to when they could walk to work. Maybe it was a couple or, uh, you know, could walk to work. Um, uh, you know, with the federal government. I mean, that was okay uh, then, but when they're working from home and two people are on Zoom like we're doing now, you know, uh, it just was not feasible. And then, and then, you know, I need a home gym or, or you know, any number of different things where I need a little more elbow room. So, so demand for uh, for um, detached homes, you know, maybe backyard space because I don't want you know too close to my neighbors, and and also they could be a little further away because they're not going downtown. So, so I had a lot of clients. I'm an active realtor. A lot of clients, you know, Carlton Carlton Place, Almont, Arnprior came into play. Perth, you know, people all of a sudden could uh, could be there near a good hospital, uh, don't have to go into the office, and wanted more space, and so. So that's another element of, of what we're seeing and why this is a federal, uh, a big important federal issue is, is that in the past it was that you know, prices were a Toronto and Vancouver issue, like you said in your introduction, but now this is everywhere. Yeah. This is everywhere across the province because demand is higher. You know, you don't have, it doesn't take too many buyers uh, to increase the demand in Renfrew for all of a sudden the market to get out of balance. And so um, so this is really a, a high demand uh, in, a, in a lot of different places. And it's great that we can have people wanting to live there, but it's really everywhere and every property type um, uh, that uh, has, has been in demand. And uh, that's what's uh, creating pressure in markets that maybe haven't seen that kind of pressure in, in, in the past. Uh, Steve, uh, the Liberals have that uh, uh, rent-to-own program as part of their platform. It's contingent on landlords committing to charging less rent I'm wondering how any landlord would agree to that. Yeah, I mean, I, again, you know, it's it's trying to basically say to people, we're going to help you, but the, the mechanics, is, I think Nick or David alluded to, the devil's always in the details and on those kind of things. And, you know, why would a rental developer or a developer of any kind, you know, sort of go into that program unless there were very strong incentives? So at the, at the very margin, I mean, Simic, she did come up with a, 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 a shared equity uh, mechanism to help first-time buyers into home, home ownership. And they've had very little take-up of it because these are the kind of sort of niche products that the mainstream market just isn't interested in they want to buy outright they want to buy a condo if they're going to rent they're going to rent um so i, I don't i don't think those ones there really really get to the issue very much but i mean i think david made a really important point in terms of the um you know the, the number of people who are out there actually creating the demand and driving prices up if we you know we, we sell about six hundred thousand houses a year in this country which is only about four percent of the entire population so it, 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 that's very, very few people. Three quarters of the people that are actually buying are not first time buyers, which is what the platforms are targeting. It's repeat buyers who already have accumulated equity. And the fact that house prices have gone up so much in the last you know, 10, 15 years, and particularly in the last couple of years, they've got all this accumulated equity. They can keep bidding prices up even higher. So it's the excess capacity to pay. It's, it's, it's not the greedy developers. It's, the, it's the, the consumers themselves that are driving prices up by their capacity to pay, aided and abetted by monetary policy, which is keeping interest rates very low and stretches their, their incomes even further. Um, yeah. So, I, so you know, it's, it's a different sort of perspective. So, and then that's a difficult one for the federal government to get its head around. And, and, you know, Steve, to your point, it's that excess capacity to take on debt because of low interest rates. Mm -hmm. Really, if interest rates went up, the market would uh, the market would change, right? So, uh, so nineteen eighty one, and you know the other the other thing is is what we haven't talked about is, you know, I'll say the dirty little secret that no one ever really says is that 
everyone wants real estate to appreciate, but they just don't want it to appreciate super fast. They want the stability of, uh, of a real estate investment. And, you know, we know from our research that for most Canadians, their home is their singest biggest investment. When they see it appreciate, they feel good. If they think that the price isn't going up, you're going to go down. So this is about kind of like having a, having some type of environment where, yes, there can be steady appreciation of real estate. That's normal. But that what we've seen in the last year is abnormal because of the pandemic, because of the, the, the monetary policy that Steve was talking about. So this isn't about like lowering the price of homes because, you know what? Homeowners don't want the price of homes to go down, right? That would be very unpopular. Yeah. What they want is for there to be a stable market where there's choice and supply and that there's some sort of normal appreciation. And, and I think one of the things that's put a, a greater sense of urgency is what I'll say, just faster appreciation in the last while where people are now worried about, can I even get in? which creates a rush, right? And these yeah. low interest rates and high prices basically puts pre pressure on people, to, especially first-time buyers, to get into the market because they figure they're never going to get in and to try to lock down rates because they have that capacity to take on more debt. See, I've, I've, I've seen this as a demographic, demographic divide. Younger Canadians are, are wanting into the housing market and obviously the prices are too high. Older Canadians see it as a retirement plan. They don't want to see the value drop. So yeah. it's somebody's going to have to give at some point or they not, Steve? Well, they, yeah, well, they can give some of the money to their kids to buy a house, I guess. But I mean, I, I, th I think, you know, you know part, of, part of the, the sort of discussion that gets muddied in this in, in sort of the, the supply issue is there are two different types of supply. There's supply as in building new homes, and then there's supply as in the inventory of existing homes that are for sale. And as David can attest, you know, we've seen a very low level of, of people listing their homes for sale, you know, count uh, or juxtaposed against, you know, an, an excess number of folks looking to buy. And so, you know, supply responses that actually look at new construction, if, if you start thinking about it today, you're not going to have that house built for four years. It's actually not going to help any of the political parties, whoever gets elected in, the, in, in their term, because they won't actually be available. So I think, you know, thinking about, you know, the, the lack of listings is actually what the issue is. And whether we can actually nudge folks, I mean, those seniors are talking about, if there were products that were being developed by the industry that were enticing them out of that, they're rattling around in a big three or four bedroom family home that they've got some emotional attachment to, but it's too big to really look after. Um, you know, thinking about how we actually change the kind of the, the type of housing we are supplying uh, to get some of those folks out of that three, three, four bedroom home and make it available to young families. But then of course there is a price issue around doing that if those houses are in expensive areas. Uh, you know, they're not going to be affordable to the younger families. Uh, David, a, a point about uh, choice of supply. Uh, obviously, you know, we've got rental, we've got condo, you've got single family home, you've got a mm -hmm. townhome. Uh, what other, uh, I guess, parts of the supply chain are we missing here when it comes to housing? Yeah, I mean, I think that Steve identified an issue that, you know, five years ago, if we would talk to our, our, our in, in a different market where maybe it was a more of a balanced market and depending on what your property was, it might have been a bit of a buyer's market, we might say we would might counsel our, our client to uh, sell their home first so that they knew that it was sold and knew what their closing date was, knew what their money was, and then we'll go buy one because there's half a dozen that you like. So we know we'll be good. So now the conversation is, well, we don't know what you're going to buy. So you better buy first because we know we're going to sell because demand is high. 
And so some people don't like that option, so they don't list. So that's another pressure on the, on the, on the listing because they say, look, I don't want to uh, go through that process. I don't want to put, go through that pressure. And I also, you know, for the for, for a, a, at least a year, people were not, you know, sort of keen on having people into their homes because they weren't quite certain about how uh, how showings would go, you know, uh, you know, before people were vaccinated, etc. So I think that we've had uh, a little bit more uh, supply because people are a little more confident in that. And realtors have done a very very good job in the last year and a half, you know, safe showings and all that sort of stuff. So I think that um, you know we we've got a little bit better job at that, but still uh, inventories are historically very very low. You know it's like just over a month of inventory. You know when when I when I say that we do a couple thousand transactions in Ottawa each year on MLS. I'm rounding, and we've got about a month of inventory. We've got a couple thousand listings. So you know in a balanced market that would be we'd want it to be like about four or five months of inventory where people would have choice and it would be a little more balanced. So. The, the supply uh, imbalance is quite acute for sure. You know, and one thing one thing I'd like to add uh, to what David said in terms of pockets of opportunity and, and some work that we did for the uh, Ottawa Real Estate Board, it suggests that things like, uh, you know, granny suites, multi-generational homes where, you know, we know that we have, uh, you know, we have an aging population. And for the pandemic, there've been a lot of families who are kind of like, I'm not sure how I feel about putting my mom and dad in a home because they could be at mm-hmm. risk. I'd rather have them with us. And this is where, you know, to to David and Steve's point earlier about zoning at the local level and the municipal level can make a big difference. So uh, creating an environment where, you know, you could have a coach house, you could have a granny suite. And I'm not even sure if that's politically correct, but why don't we say <laughs> yeah, a granny person you're talking about. <laughs> can have our, we can have our parents live with us for those of us that want to do that. Um, is is kind of things in the market that could be done where, we know that's what people are asking for these things just because our demographics is, is changing and can and can help create some choice in the marketplace. Because I think that's what the, one of the problems is, is supply and choice. And then what are the what are the things that a municipality can do to help improve supply and choice without a big intervention or I'll call a big government intervention in the marketplace? Right. Uh, Steve, real estate investment trusts uh, have really taken off in the last little while. Are they having an impact on the uh, the supply side? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I, I think they're you know they get tarred with this brush, but I think it's much beyond them. But essentially, what we're seeing is because we have, have you know seen significant increase in rental uh, rent levels, uh, the asset values uh, of uh, you know rental is seen as a good asset class for investment. Um, so various capital funds uh, and particularly real estate investment trusts are identifying properties. You know, we got a lot of rental stock we built in the 60s, 70s. It's relatively affordable because of the historic cost. Um, and it's you know, maybe renting close to the median market rent. I would call that relatively affordable housing. The, the, uh, the real estate investment trusts come along and they see that they call it an underperforming asset. And you see, real, I mean, I'm sure David can speak to this as well. You see real estate listings where the realtors are listing a property that's an investment property. Uh, you know, maybe it's be a fourplex or a you know, smaller, smaller property. And they're saying you know, low rents, lots of potential for increased rents. And that's sort of the marketing shtick. And then the and then they're pricing it based on the capitalized value of the potential rent, not the current rent. And so they they, you know, that sort of investment behavior, you have to say from the large capital funds as well as from small investors, have been a big factor in actually driving up both you know, well, the rents are, are, are 
going up in concert with that. And they're driving up the asset values and the property values as well. And they are one of the key contributors uh, to the um, the loss of those those 322,000 units like, you know, you mentioned at the outset. Right. And we haven't got data yet from the 2021 census, but I guarantee you when we see, we see it, we'll see it even faster loss in the last five years because this whole process has accelerated uh, very, very substantially. So it's a, it's a big, big impact on the affordable part of the, the rental system. Folks, I, I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, a great discussion uh, about affordable housing. Our guest today on Unpublished TV, Nick Nanos, Chief Data Scientist and Founder at Nanos Research. Steve Pomeroy, Senior Research Fellow for the Center for Urban Research and Education at Carleton University. And David Oikel is the President of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Now, coming up on the next Unpublished TV, we'll take a look at each party's plan for COVID economic recovery. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.